Hey Ben, ask me if we're reviewing an Italian neorealist classic. Nathan, are we reviewing an Italian neorealist classic today? As if. Uh, <laughs> no, Ben. We're reviewing Clueless. You got me. <laughs> a movie that's a little bit like both of our board game collections, I'm guessing. Unless you have the world's worst deduction game in, in your collection. I don't hate Clue that much, but Benoit it's Blanc not in my does. collection. Benoit Blanc is correct, and that part was funny, but we're not talking about Glass Onion. We either already have, I think we probably already have talked about Glass Onion. So you know our thoughts about Glass Onion, folks, that... We don't. <laughs> we don't, because we haven't recorded the episode yet, but I think it's coming out with, before this one. Anyway, we're here to talk about Clueless. <laughs> no, it's not a movie about Ben's fashion sense. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-Megan. Pre-Megan, yes. <laughs> this is the first of three, and probably the most well-known of three. What do we call these things? Staff picks. Staff picks. This is the staff pick of one, Jacob Cumensel who I'll introduce in a second. But first, let me introduce the show. I, got, I get the Q treatment on this one? Well, only because of one aspect that we all forgot about in this movie mm. that some of our, our viewers may have noticed, which we'll talk about very soon. But other than that, you deserve your actual middle initial because this movie kind of rocks. But sorry, that's my take coming out of it. But we'll get to it. Uh, this is Sanity at the Movies. I am Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. We've got Benny's the preacher, the teacher of cinema right there. Yep. He was a very cool teenager, and he's boy howdy. He's wearing a plaid shirt today in honor of all of Cher's plaid skirts. That's why, or plaid socks, or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, '90s fashion. This movie has it. Well, this movie kind of created it, at least that brand of it. And Ben, Nathan, why don't you introduce the who would Jake be? Is he the Paul Rudd? Is he the what's, what's Paul Rudd's name in this movie? Jonathan, Josh, Josh. Yeah, is he is Jake the Josh of our podcast or the Ty of our podcast? Like everyone's somebody in Clueless. <laughs> so, <laughs> just feels like one of those <laughs> stupid clickbait things. Uh, <laughs> what character from Clueless are you? Is he the Mister Wally Sean <laughs> character, whatever his name is? Yeah, that guy's the best. He's um, always good in everything. Yeah, he can be the Paul Rudd of the podcast. <laughs> Sure. sure. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. I, he could be, I he listen could, to Radiohead and read Nietzsche. He, he could he could be the share around. He could be the Cher's dad of the podcast. Hey, yeah, that's that's Cher's, a little more fitting. I love Cher's dad. What a yeah. great character. Well, did we say who he is and what his actual function is? Well, you you did give his name a minute ago, but this is Jacob K. Menzel, I suppose, the pastor <laughs> who's a master of cinema. Hey, Jake. Hey, should we talk? Let's just get the Jacob Q. Menzel out of the way. It's possible yeah. I underestimated the lack of modesty in this movie. Yes, it's not the most modest movie. It feels like, I dare say, it was directed by a man, which is interesting because it, it was, was not. directed and written by a woman. By a woman. And I think mostly you can tell that, and it has the virtues of said situation, but the it also has a weird vice in that it is very, what's the word? Voyeuristic, not voyeuristic. What word am I looking for? It's just got a lot of it's just like scantily any, clad. Yeah, in any given shot, there'll be people in the background even. And certainly, mm -hmm. Alicia's Silverstone's costumes are not always the most modest in the world. Oh, we'll get random shots of her changing clothes. Right. Yeah, well, we, were t we were saying before, and I think this is true, that more of our viewers might be offended 
to watch this movie than say the godfather even though the godfather has a two sex scenes and one that's got nudity because those things are such isolated incidents that you can fast forward or it's not the whole iconography of the godfather whereas clueless it's like close-ups of girls and tight outfits is the iconography of the movie right yep so if you don't like clueless for that reason then that's fine and i don't know is there anything else we want to say about that nope if you feel if you watched it because i made it my staff pick and it hurt you i apologize yes Maybe the true clueless person, Jake, was you. Maybe. All right. I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, we can't keep coming back to it while we talk about how... I mean, we can keep coming back to it, I guess. But we're also going to talk about how great this movie is and why you picked it. So just let that hang over everything else as it should. But also, we're not going to stop every three minutes to say, Hey, wait a second. Even though we're saying what's great about this movie, remember the other thing. Because we trust that you can listen to the entire podcast and put all the different things that we say together. You're an adult, or you're a teenager, or you're a young person listening to this podcast. But either way, you're an intelligent person. Clueless, Ben, 1995. What were you doing in 1995? Going to... I was homeschooled, so let's see. What did I do in 1995? I don't remember. Reading books by Diana Wynne-Jones, perhaps. Actually, that may be true. Yeah, probably so. Jake, same question? In 1995, I was 11 years old. I was, what, sixth grade? And so I was entering the drama, the middle school drama of now we suddenly care about fashion and girls and things like that. We have dances now we go to with people and parties at girls' houses and things like that. So I was just entering into that world, still playing sports and stuff with my friends and biking all across town and that sort of thing too living the stranger things life yeah i mean you were on bikes so yeah that's the reference and the touchstone for our utterly worthless generation not our our utterly worthless generation the people younger than us not really for millennials we still have spielberg Anyway, this is not a podcast about my love of stranger things there will never be a podcast about my love of stranger things (laughs) nor will there ever be a podcast about my hatred of stranger things i just don't want to do a podcast about stranger things it doesn't deserve it it's lame there i said it yeah i agree hot take okay what was i doing in 1995 i was i'm a year younger than jake so i would have been in fifth grade i would have been 10 years old i was homeschooled but i was about in sixth grade to go into private christian school so I was about to enter into the the weird twilight world of not quite the high school experience that Jake just described, but certainly more of it than I was used to. And I was an awkward, shy child who... Now, this was my middle school experience. We had middle school dances and all yeah, that yeah, stuff. True. Okay, parties. Yeah. And like in sixth grade, I went to a dance with a girl. And so yeah. the, like all this stuff was, you know, that's just that was just the public school then how many girls did you dance with during your entire educational experience mine is zero so you, uh, you don't have to be ashamed yeah I, I, i'm not you could make me look bad by being like hundreds and well, i went to private it, it was either it was one i think but it was at a summer camp not school so that may not even count there you go there you go i think it counts i mean all right i'll take it it's kind of a organized yeah it was a, it was a thing there you go. For us, middle school started in sixth grade, and it was the jump from like you wore jerseys and things like that to school, like to now you need to be wearing designer clothes and 
you need to care about girls and you need to start crossing lines. Right. You yeah. need to be asking girls to dances. You need to get your first kiss. You need to start doing other things beyond that. Yep. And that was just the, the culture. Yeah. Hmm. I did not really have those pressures going to Christian school. I guess that was a good thing about Christian school. I don't know. I have thoughts about Christian school, but that's not this podcast either. It's not a podcast about Stranger Things. It's not a podcast about Christian school. I certainly would not send my child to the public school system here in Evansville, even though it's not as bad as a lot of them. So there you go. Okay. So Clueless, what's your Clueless history, Ben? I saw it once before on Jake's recommendation. There you go. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was interested after he told me it was what it was. It was a Take of Emma. And he was like, it's really immodest, Ben. And you're like, wow, interesting. (laughs) I want to see that. I'll watch it with my wife. (laughs) Uh, He told you it was a take on Emma. Yeah. And that it was really fun, really clever, quintessential 90s film. And I I wanted to see it. Yep. Because I remember seeing the poster when I was a kid or whatever, but had no interest in a teenage girl kind of comedy flick thing. So saw it, liked it, thought, oh, that's immodest. Saw it again for this podcast and was like, oh, <laughs> that's really immodest. I dare say I enjoyed it more the first time and less in preparing to talk about it just because what we already said. Yeah. Okay. Jake, same question. I don't know what my history with Clueless is. feels like... It's just always been there. One of those. Yeah. It's like the kind of thing like at the you know dance after party, you end up at somebody's house for a sleepover, some girl's house or whatever for a, a sleepover, a group of people and... That's the kind of movie that's on. Yes. You know. I would, the movie that I think of as the quintessentially that movie was a movie that came out two years later called The Wedding Singer. Yeah. With Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler, which I have seen thousands of times simply in because. In that kind of context. It, in that context. Yeah. I, I don't think I ever said, hooray, I am going to watch The Wedding Singer. What a great idea. And yet I have seen The Wedding Singer. It's a handful of movies like that. Yeah. Clueless was one of them. Wedding Singer was one of them. A Knight's Tale was one of them. Yes. Uh, dreamy. Dreamy. Um, Heath and uh, these are movies I never saw. I saw Night's Tale once, but never the like Wedding Singer. This whole bubblegum pop, yeah, uh, rom com genre of this sort of light, lighthearted, funny, fun yeah. type of things. It's like it, nobody who you put it on, you forget about it. It's something to have on. I think the closest thing like that for me, at least in my household, would have been Return to Me or something because my sister was always playing it and my mom was a big fan. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, the difference is Return to Me's got that, you know... I know. Some heaviness, some emotional... Yeah, right. it's, weight it's an actual it. movie. Yeah. The, I mean, Clues is an actual movie, but... Yeah, but... Uh-huh. It's also an, it's some MTV iconography to just have uh, yeah, in the, the background. The, I guess that's my history of it, and I don't know, I, I went back to it probably the first time uh, we read Emma, which would have been five or six mm-hmm. years ago, because it's an adaptation of Emma. And that's why it was my staff pick for this month, because we're returning to Emma for the booking. And right. I thought, oh, in my mind, Clueless is maybe the best or most fun ad- adaptation of maybe any Jane Austen, or at least that's how it, where it stood in my mind. And so I was looking forward to... Yeah, well, I think that that might be true, which says more about the quality of most Austin adaptations yeah, yeah. Than, than anything else, because I don't think that this is actually a great adaptation of Emma, but... Emma's also maybe my favorite book in the world, so that's a pretty high bar. But I I would say this is better than the Gwyneth Paltrow, Emma, and it's certainly better than the, what's that girl with the angular face? Anya Joy Taylor. Anya Joy Taylor. And those are that's all the competition you've got. 
Yeah. But it has the same fatal flaw that they all have, which we'll, we can talk about when we get to it. What's my history with Clueless? I do feel like it's a quintessential 90s film in the way that Jake describes. I think It and Scream are what I would say are the like two kind of like encapsulate encapsulate the, the whole yeah and, and those were the two you know if you're a little older and you wanted gore going on in the background of your party and you wanted the girls to scream and bury their heads in your chest then then scream would be your thing and all this crap that came out of it i knew know what you did last summer and yep. you've said before jake you saw those movies absolutely and you, you yeah. absolutely no interest in the genre but it's just like you couldn't avoid them you couldn't avoid them and they're very i mean you could you could go live in a hole in a basement or something like that and avoid uh, people and parties but schooled and not have parties jake <laughs> right he said live in a hole in your basement <laughs> that's what i said <laughs> that's hey. what he just said <laughs> Avoid people parties. Well, they are kind of atypical in that you look at the 80s slashers and it's like these no-name stars and grainy footage and all this stuff. But Scream, it's like all the TV stars of the time. It's yep. Drew, Drew Barrymore is, has the famous opening scene. You want to watch a scary movie, whatever the line is. I can't even, I don't even yeah. remember. And it's all stars and it's brightly lit. It kind of actually has the same... Sheen. It's got a sheen to it. The That's 90s, very 90s aesthetic. Everything is bright and poppy and... It's very odd for a horror movie, actually. It's like, what? Why? This isn't a very scary way to... That wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. That was never the point. And Wes Craven, the maestro of the macabre, was smart enough to understand that. So I actually only really caught up with Clues. I think I'd seen bits and pieces on TV. I was certainly familiar with it. But I only probably watched it in the aftermath of our first sat down and stared at it and uh, absorbed it in the aftermath of our first Emma conversation. And I think, as I remember it, you had that experience, a really nice experience that you have where you go back to something that you took for granted as a kid and then you realize, oh, this is actually operating on a much higher level than I was ever aware. I remember getting a CD from the library. This was maybe before cell phones with when I was 20. It was before I had a cell phone anyway, with all the Mencken and what's the, all the Disney songs on it and just listening to them and realizing, oh, these are really, really clever, clever and well done songs. And melod- like this is the top of what Broadway and everything had to offer. I mean, this is just the best musical theater that you could ask for and just realizing. Disguised in a kid's movie. Right. Beauty and the Beast wasn't just some fun thing that we watched to pass the time. It was a masterpiece. And that's a fun thing to realize about, you know, there's certain childhood things you go back and you're like, oh, that belongs in the past and it should stay there. Mm-hmm. But you find certain things and you're like, this is this is much more clever and, and fun than I even thought it was. All the stuff I took for granted is actually awesome. And Clues is certainly like that. It's a very, very well done movie, as we'll talk about. So yeah, that's our that's everybody's history with Clueless. But let me give a little context. I thought we'd have a little fun today and talk about the context of the teenage movie, which actually requires us to talk about the history of the teenager, which some of our listeners may not realize is a very brief history. The teenager as a concept really did not exist through the entire run of humankind's time on this spinning planet. The teenager really only emerged as a definitive concept in the 20th century. So we're going to talk about that. Ben, we need some, can, you, can I get some doo-wop 
music or something like that. <laughs> Too hop music. <laughs> the history of the American teenager. We need we need I, to hit the fifties, man. I can't do it. I'm sorry. You can't do it. No, I can't. I you can't, can't pull it. Do <laughs> do 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 do. <laughs> Listen, the twentieth century really did invent the teenager. I mean, you look at in the Bible. Does the Bible have anything you could even argue is entering into that category? I mean, there's young men, there's young women. But what am I trying to say? It's not that people never had the idea that there was any kind of transitionary period between being a kid and being an adult. It's not that people didn't realize there was that time frame. It's not that if you read a Jane Austen novel, for example, you don't see those kinds of characters. It's just that there's not this clearly delineated, you turn 13 and then you are transitioning from a child into an adult. You turn 18. Now you're an adult. Now you're an adult. You read a Jane Austen novel. It's like you have your coming out, ladies, you go to your first ball anywhere between 14 and 16. And maybe that's kind of your, now you're sexually available. Now you can get married. You read, we we're reading Anna Karenina for the booking right now. I think Kitty does come out when she's 18. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that someone couldn't have made a proposal before that if mm. they'd wanted to. There are women that get married as young as 14 in Jane Austen novels. So it's kind of like there's this nebulous period There's between childhood. It seems to be very cultural. I mean, Tolstoy is definitely commenting on the differences, consciously con commenting on the differences between the way things are done in England at the time, the way things are done in, in Russia. Yeah, they've got this problem where it's fashionable. It's becoming fashionable to let the young people choose in Russia, which is kind of a Western thing that's invading Russia. And it's causing all kinds of problems because they're like, well, we can't just arrange it like we used to. Like, like we were, we as the parents, our marriage was probably arranged or mm -hmm. at least somewhat set yeah, in stone. Yeah, we got all this encroaching European influence with the French and the English. And, you know, it's just part of the conflict of... Russia, what does it mean to even be Russian and where do we draw lines? And right. Thinks that they're going to social climb by being more European and who thinks they're going to social climb by being less European and who thinks screw social climbing right? because I want to be more European or because I want to be more Russian. It's just part of the milieu of, of Russia, at least at the time that Anna Karenina was set. Right. Well, and you're reminding me of the conversation we had about Romeo and Juliet last year on the booking, which is which is the same thing. England is in this transitionary period. I realize Romeo and Juliet is set in Fair Verona, but Shakespeare's politics and sexual mores are reflecting more his own time than Fair Verona's. And so you've got, well, we all used to arrange our marriages, but uh, this thing called the Protestant Reformation swept through the world and kind of changed things. And we are in this kind of in-between, this liminal space where like, we don't know what to do. Like Juliet's father is like, yes, yes, she can choose whoever she wants, my 14-year-old daughter. But then she chooses Romeo, the wrong person. And he's like, no, you will obey me. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the classic stories from the last 500 years are about the push and pull of that, of that sort of thing. I mean, even Emma itself is very much those kinds of tensions. And you go back to biblical times, I mean, most people think the Virgin Mary was, what, 13, 12, 13? Somewhere between 12 and 15 is the generally accepted age range for Mary. Right. So she was a kid, and then she was a woman who an angel was coming to and saying, you're going to have a baby. There wasn't a 
you know, there wasn't 10 years or eight years or five years, we think, of a time where she could sort of find herself and go to high school and Hmm. get out. So I'm not saying for today's purposes, whether any of that's good or bad or I don't know. Do you guys want to say anything about any of that? Make any judgments Mm -mm. about Ben? I can see your brow clouding with judgment. You say (laughs) at 12 years old, every child should be (laughs) cast (laughs) off into the world. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Those are the thoughts. I mean, it is true that people's frontal lobes aren't like connected and they've got a bunch of hormones running through their bodies saying, hey, hey, we're the hormones. And people from ages 15 to 19 have a mortality rate that's three times higher than people five to 15 or, you know, anyone after. So I think you could say some things about, oh, there's a, maybe it's a useful category to say there's this long transitionary period. But I don't know. In any case, the word teenager doesn't emerge until the 20th century, early, early 20th century. And I was looking at some magazines from World War II, and they're talking about teeners. And this is, this is as late as like the late 40s, actually. This was after World War. Um, and it's like this new category. It's like, how do we deal with teeners? And it's not that you can't go back to the 20s again and find people saying, how do we deal with flappers? You know, there's always been these loose categories. But there's really this idea of the teenager as a, as a distinct, defined category that emerges in the mid-20th century. And the reason it emerges, people say, is because, well, in the 19th century and before, we had these loose agrarian kind of societies. Mass production became a thing. The Industrial Revolution and cities became a thing. And people were moving into the cities and they had to decide what they were going to do with their kind of children who had hit puberty. And so older children would go work in the mills and things like that. And so there was this big counter movement to say, no, they need to be in school. We need to not treat them like that. There actually is something, they are still vulnerable enough that they deserve some protection that you wouldn't afford to an adult, even though they have the kind of bodily strength to be treated like an adult. It's like you're getting all of the benefits of them being an adult, but you're not giving them any of the privileges that come with being an adult. So you have a real problem. And the way that the West Western world dealt with that was by making education mandatory through about 18. And so from 1930 to 19, or no, from 1920 to 1936, public education for teenagers went from 30%, which is a pretty low number for as early as 1920, to 60%. And suddenly teeners are in school together and they have this period of time where they can develop their own culture instead of just being like, I'm turning 13. I must now join my parents' culture and or get out of the house and go find- Make my way in the world. Make my way in the world. And so high school becomes really a thing, you know, by, by the late 30s. And a bunch of other things change. The automobile changes everything. I came across in my research this really funny Irving Berlin song from 1909, and I don't know the melody, but the l- lyrics are, there's a certain man flirt, there's a certain flirting man with money in the bank. The man I mean owns a machine, the kind you have to crank. His great delight is to invite a girly for a whirl in his machine, and I just mean to kind of warn each girl, keep away from the fellow who owns an automobile. This is the chorus. 
He'll take you far in his motor car, too darn far for your pa and mar. If his 40 horsepower goes 60 miles an hour, say goodbye forever, goodbye forever. There's no chance to talk, squawk, or balk. You must kiss him or get out and walk. Keep away from the fellow who owns an automobile. So the car really changed the dating scene. I mean, you don't just, you read Tolstoy, like we've been doing Austin and Tolstoy. You don't come court somebody and sit on, come to dinner at their house and sit on the front porch. And be integrated somehow into family life. Yeah, you um, go off. It's like in The Godfather, you have the old world where Michael goes to court that girl and he's becoming part of the family and they're walking and there's the that really cute scene where they're walking together and you see them and then suddenly like the whole mm-hmm. brood of kids and adults and everything comes walking behind them and you realize they're just being chaperoned. That's the old world style, but suddenly people have automobiles, they can go where they want. There's a freedom that comes for young people and there's more freedom because we win the war here in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. And in 1950s, the economy is booming. Everybody's got expendable cash. Birth rates are declining as female education rises. The pill becomes a thing in the 50s and the 60s. People are having less kids. They're spending a lot more money on each kid. And so this whole culture develops where it's not like we're having 20 kids and maybe 11 of them will survive. And then those 11 need to work as hard as they can to become adults as quickly as they can so we can all work on the farm. It's like, no, I'm having two kids and I'm pouring my life. In fact, the whole meaning of my marriage and my existence is to raise these two kids and provide for them and make sure they have a better life than I do and have all the privileges that I didn't. And that's what modern, it's not so, it's just people are kind of rebelling against that now and have been for a long time. But in the mid 20th century, that's kind of the ideal. And that's relatively weird, historically speaking, that we would be so like kid focused. Like Mm -hmm. I have a kid and it's about the kid. It's not about the family. It's not about Mm -hmm. my mission. It's about the kid. And we have lots of expendable cash, which means the kids also have lots of expendable cash. So basically, by the 1950s, you have a whole new class of people who have freedom, who have an immense sexual drive, who have expendable cash, and who therefore have a low sales resistance. And Hollywood, among many other corporations, is like, we should sell these people stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what defines the American and the Western teenager is, huh, what can we sell these young people with hormones? Time on their hands and expendable cash. And expendable cash. And so Hollywood quickly figures this out and we'll talk very quickly about what they do. So it's funny. I mean, take, taking a step back, if you look in like the 1920s, 1930s, even 1940s, they haven't figured this out. The teenager really doesn't hasn't emerged yet. And so there's not really a category of teenage movies. I mean, there's things like Wizard of Oz, where Judy Garland is obviously an adult. She's obviously, I don't know what she actually was when she did this that movie. I'm guessing she was in her 20s, actually. But she's kind of comes across as a teenager, even though she's playing a girl that's 10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of that sort of thing. And you have these really corny, like Mickey Rooney, Andy Hardy movies where he plays an all-American, optimistic, good boy. 
There's a whole series of these really corny movies. I think some of them came to HBO Max. You can watch them if you have that. Typical story will be like Andy gets into trouble with some money or girls because he's youthful and he's selfish. And then he has a talk with his dad, the judge. And his dad, the judge, has all kinds of man-to-man kind of wisdom to give him. And then Andy goes and does the right thing. And it's just, I don't know why anybody... I mean, they're, they're fun to watch as period pieces for their kind of wholesomeness, but we would all kind of sneer at them now. And it's funny to think that an actual teenager would ever see themselves all that much reflected in that or be all that excited or enticed by that. Judy Garland also, in addition, I mean, she's famous. Wizard of Oz is the thing that's lasted, but she did a lot of movies in the 1940s where it was like, hey, gang, they were called, hey, gang, let's put on a show movies like dad doesn't believe that we can hit Broadway. So we're going to get all the townsfolk together and we're going to do our song and dance. And it's just an excuse to sting, string a bunch of Judy Garland songs along. But really, those are just proto teenage movies. They really don't. The genre as such doesn't exist really until the 50s when the idea of a teenager really emerges. And there's a couple of really important movies. There's The Wild One, which is with Marlon Brando. It's his big breakout movie. I believe that was 1953. Brando is the leader of a biker gang that comes through a small town and causes havoc. And it's got the really famous line where the waitress comes up to Brando and says, what are you rebelling against, Johnny? And he says, what do you got? And boy, did teenagers like that. So, so that kind of cemented the rebellion aspect of these movies, which Hollywood quickly realized, oh, authority is stupid. And Teenagers will pay money for movies where people rebel against it. Everybody feels stifled by their parents. Everybody feels stifled by their teachers. It's a universal experience that someone that's young and is in that in-between stage in life feels badly towards the authority figures. And if we can tap into that, then... Well, <laughs> what we should definitely do is make a movie and put the word rebel in the title. <laughs> oh, that's, that's exactly where well. I was going. Took a, an authoritarian cookie cutter system to do it so well. <laughs> I know, I know. That's the irony of, of this thing. <laughs> rebel, rebel. <laughs> Give us our, your money. <laughs> Become consumer slave. I mean, yeah. we yeah. live in a Along with the workers, keep building them new ones. Oh, man. Well, okay. So, soda cans. so two, three years <laughs> later, you have, as Jake was just uh, alluding to, a movie that, in my for my money, does not hold up. Never seen yeah, that's it. my take too. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time. I saw it as part of my movie education experience and just thought, what in the world? Well, and the thing that really doesn't hold up is the thing that it's most famous for, which is its acting. You know, it's like, finally, naturalistic acting. Right. And then yeah. you watch it and it's, it's like, like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> this was naturalistic acting? It's just a bunch of like ticks and sort of <laughs> exaggerations. <laughs> we were talking, of course, about James Dean's Rebel Without a Cause. <laughs> You're tearing me apart. That's, that's, that's the famous line from that movie. Yeah. Like wow. he says it, it to was his... definitely very uh, very naturally delivered. <laughs> well, it was dynamite at the time, I guess. Yeah. But and all the people that came out of it, you know, your Pacinos and all, all the Godfather cast, they're all they all seem great and very naturalistic, but I guess James Dean had to somehow break it open. Um, he was dead by the time that movie came out. He had already died. And so the iconography of James Dean was already like, he was already becoming a legend at that point when the movie came out. But that movie, it's pretty, for being a movie that's like the touchstone rebellious teenager movie, it's kind of weirdly conservative. They didn't actually know how 
to be actually rebellious at the time. It's all about he's mad at his dad because his dad won't stand up to his mom. His dad is kind of henpecked and he just wants his dad to be a man. And, and so it's actually <laughs> in a weird way, not that far off from those Andy Rooney movies or Andy uh, Mickey Rooney, Andy, Andy Hardy movies I was describing. But it is just two hours of sluggish melodrama yeah. and faux angst. And <laughs> yeah, that sounds that's what terrible. I remember. Have you seen it, Ben? No, I haven't seen I, it. I I've never seen a James Dean movie. I don't. I just don't like him. I don't like his East of Eden. I mean, I just think he's of his time. I'm sure he did great things for cinema and the art of acting, but it just doesn't yeah. doesn't translate. Doesn't huh? translate. Yeah, very of its time. So I think The Wild One gives you rebellion. Rebel Without a Cause gives you angst or angst our old pastor always used to say angst i don't know i don't know what most people say i guess i say angst i now. say angst yeah i say angst yeah but, but I, I learned it first as a german word in german class yeah well <laughs> so we have two of the four attributes of the teenage movie but we still don't have maybe the biggest one which is just about to hit in 1956 Anybody want to take a guess? Not so much the movie, but the attribute. I alluded to it earlier, and Ben refused to play along. Doo-wop? Well, not so much doo-wop, but music, rock and roll. Okay. Rock and roll. Teenagers are full of hormones and full of sexual drive, and it turns out that when someone is like that and someone has low sales resistance, one of the best ways that you can manipulate them and speak to them is through the artistic medium that speaks directly to the soul. These are not rash. <laughs> give us Elvis, and then let's build off that. Yep, give us Elvis. So Elvis's first movie, Jailhouse Rock. Actually, it's not his first movie, but his first movie where they were like, oh, we should have Elvis sing and do his hip thing in a movie instead of play a character is Jailhouse Rock. That's 1956. There's another movie called Rock Around the Clock, which isn't an Elvis movie, but it's considered the first big rock and roll movie. Those both hit in 1956. And, you know... As Plato said, rhythm and harmony find their way into the inmost soul. And so they do, which is why, which is why Plato thought that they should be outlawed. <laughs> in his, in his he might have had a point. <laughs> in his perfect republic. Well, yeah, I think he might have had a point. But rock and roll becomes the driving cultural influence of the 20th century, certainly of the middle 20th century. And that is in the mid-50s. My family legend was always that my grandma had died because she saw Elvis, that she just could not, like her brain couldn't. It's not like she saw Elvis and dropped dead, but she died around the same time as, not my grandma, but my great-great, you know, their oh, grandma. Okay. My Get dad's, me out of this world. Right. What is this? This weird, effeminate, cocky, sexually activated guy. Like, I just, I cannot... I, who grew up without an automobile, who wore bloomers, I cannot wrap my head around what this world has turned into in my lifetime. Now I will die. And I think you do, as quaint and corny as Elvis can seem now, you have to understand him that way, which is why you go see Baz Luhrmann's stupid piece of crap movie. <laughs> Except for don't, because it's stupid. And you have to understand the Beatles that way. You have to understand how, like, I want to hold your hand. Sexually charged song that parents did not want their kids to listen to. because. If you've ever actually been in a, you know, a dating relationship, you understand that holding someone's hand can be electrifying. Fact, electrifying. Yeah. yeah. And the Beatles understood that. And it's only our stupid, dead, unerotic, de-erotic, whatever. De-eroticized. De-eroticized society that doesn't understand how powerful holding a hand can be. But the Beatles understood. And so Hard Day's Night happens in 1964. That's the big Beatles movie. I forget when the Ed Sullivan 
thing happened, but that's somewhere in there. And then you have the exploitation houses, the independent producers who are, you know, I'm, I'm naming like the big Hollywood productions, but always there's these guys who are like, oh, we can do much crappier versions of this and make lots of money. So you have a ton of biker movies. You have a ton of rock and roll movies. You have all the beach party movies in the 1960s. Beach Blanket Bingo, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, all these wonderful movies that combine, by nowadays, very quaint rock and roll and people in bikinis, you know, sex, rock and roll, all the stuff that teenagers like. And so that's really... Just can't get the drugs in yet. They just can't get the drugs in. Well, I think there's two other benchmarks. Well, there's a few other benchmarks. So 1977 is Halloween, which is taking the old urban legend of the babysitter's murders and doing it well. And that created the slasher film. And that is, you know, one of the, one of the as we said with Scream, I mean, Scream was just the 90s version of something that they discovered in the 70s, which is it's really fun for a bunch of teenagers to go to a drive-in or go to a theater together. And for all the girls to scream and all the guys to, you know, protectively put their mm-hmm. arms around them. And so movies with jump scares and people sneaking around in the dark and killers with knives coming out. You know, if we can all just go and kind of have a ritualized blood fest together, that can be almost as powerful in its own way as rock and roll. And if we can throw a little rock and a little sex into the mix, then so much the better. And so you have that well, genre. They, yeah, there's so much overlap in terms of yeah. symbolism and well, the lure of the forbidden and everything. Else. Right, symbolism and, I mean, it's somebody stabbing somebody with a knife. So it's, uh, you know. An act of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all very sexualized. But there are still two elements that need to coalesce to get us to Clueless in the 90s, which is, for one thing, we haven't really had, for all of the kind of, girls in bikinis running around doing and that kind of stuff. We haven't actually had any sort of actual sex movies yet. And so 70s is going to give us crap like Porky's and stuff like that. But the 80s is going to give us things like Tom Cruise and Risky Business in 1983 and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the first Amy Heckerling film who did Clueless in 1982. And these are both actually actual movies that A, can have lots of nudity, but B, can actually be about sex. They are actually about people that like sex and want to have sex and their goal is to not be virgins. And then we are talking about what is at least seen by the filmmakers as the quintessential sexual experience of a teenager. And it sounds like not entirely far off from what Jake was experiencing in his middle school and high school years. I mean, obviously. It's my middle school in the mid-90s, so mid to late 90s. So, so you guys are that all we're, like, we're all downstream. We that, watched right? these movies and that's how we needed to That's what act. we were taught. We, you know, whether it was... Um, Chicken or egg. Yeah. Well, Fast Times in particular was supposedly Cameron Crowe, the writer of that film, went undercover at a high school and just observed the way that people actually talked and stuff like that and what they were actually interested in. So that movie, for example, has an abortion subplot and stuff like that. It's supposed to be, whether whether you buy this or not, it's supposed to be a pretty realistic look at, a realistic comedic look at what was going on. Although the thing that I think most people remember it for is not that. But I won't say what that thing is if you don't know. But then you have a man who kind of reacts to all that and is like in in the early 80s and is like, 
can we calm down and maybe tell some stories about what my experience was and what I think kids' actual experience is? So it's not oversexed and it's not, it's just like, let's just do actual high school. And that was John Hughes, of course, and mm-hmm. the Brat Pack movies. You got your 16 Candles, your Breakfast Club, your what else? I mean, Weird Science is kind of in that genre, but it's a silly one. Ferris Bueller, same. But particularly 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, mm-hmm. and Breakfast Club. I mean, those movies, I don't know how I feel about those movies. I don't love any of them personally. But they certainly are, when you compare them to everything else, much more feet on the ground kind of, uh, this is how people actually talk. These are the kinds of insecurities that they have. It's not, Tom Cruise is running around looking sexy and running like a pimp business, you know, risky business. It's not, it's not all this crazy, exaggerated wish fulfillment kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. more just like, I feel awkward because my family ignores me. And... I feel tension around this event, right. around this dance, around this thing. And if you watch Breakfast Club, you can tell the actors, they think they're in their generation's rebel without a cause. Maybe they are. I don't know. They're taking it enormously seriously. Emilio Estevez and is it Judd Hirsch that plays the mm-hmm. the bad boy? Like and uh, Ali Sheedy and Molly Ringwald. And all. They're, they're, like they want to play the drama of it and the pathos of it and really capture something about what they think they saw as their own experience. And insofar as the movie holds up, I think it, personally, I think it holds up better for that stuff, even though it's kind of corny than it does for like the principals sneaking around trying to yeah. stop them from. Having fun. Ha ha ha. I mean, that stuff, that movie's a weird mix of. It's a really weird conceit if you kind of peel back the layers and just take away the. Yeah. I mean, they'd spent a day in detention. Right. That's it. That's the whole movie. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a play. It's like a chamber piece. Yeah. But then it's going to have. Mu- All kinds of capers and drama. Yeah. And- I think cut the capers out and you'd actually have a strong, I, I think go for the, just go for it. Just do a chamber piece actually. But whatever I, I don't need to rewrite the breakfast club now 30 years 35 years later people still go back to it for a reason and i mean some of that reason is just like oh it represents something that i grew up with or right that. but i imagine our kids with their right age could watch it and connect to it and still get something out of it probably not not that i necessarily recommend that they do but it, sure it's got enough universal things to connect to i don't think it's just nostalgia not that that's what you're saying um, but save the brat pack. You have movies. You have movies kind of with and around them. Say anything is probably the best of the genre. I would say the famous Jean Cusack with the boombox yeah. on top of his head. Everybody remembers that scene. But if you remember the actual movie around it, it's good. I think it's been many years since I've seen it, but it's an interesting story. The relationship between the dad and the daughter is interesting where that goes. I don't know. Maybe it's terrible. Maybe it's more immodest than Clueless. I really don't remember. But So don't take my word for it. But all those things kind of hit. The Brat Pack's a big thing. And then it kind of gets so commodified and commercialized and MTVized. I mean, we can't forget that MTV has risen to great cultural heights in the 80s that everybody kind of gets tired of it. And in the early 90s, you don't really have a lot of great classics of the genre but it really is i think it's i think it's three movies in the 90s that revitalized the teenage genre one of them pretty good one of them problematic and one of them downright evil maybe two of them downright evil it's clueless it's scream and it's american pie so clueless in 95 is like a new burst of life to the genre and it really brings something new it really brings a 90s 
irony. Cher is not an ironic character. One of the things that's lovable about her is that she's completely sincere. But the movie itself is sideways, sideways, and, and constantly commenting on itself in a very 90s way. I mean, as much as it wants to make fun of Paul Rudd for his complaint rock, the whole movie is of the complaint rock time. It, it's all, we can't really take any of this too seriously. As soon as we start looking like a teenage movie, we're going to bring the movie to a halt and say, what is this, a Noxima commercial? It's like, right. we can't go five minutes into the movie without calling out what we're doing. And of course, Scream, famously, same thing with all the slasher tropes. I mean, that's just, that's the whole conceit is we know we're in a movie and suddenly you have people saying, is this the part where we, is my, my, my most hastiest cliche of that time period of movie making is instead of saying, let's separate, they say, is this the part where we separate? I know I'm in a movie. Don't care for it. But Joss Whedon, the rise of Joss Whedon is around this time. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The movie is 92. I think this series is maybe 97. So we are entering the age of irony. And then we're going to get into the oddies with, and sincerity is going to make a brief comeback. Sincerity is going to make a comeback in our superhero movies with the Nolan trilogy and everything. But then irony will get us in the end with Robert Downey Jr. and the demise of culture and Western civilization. But thanks, Clueless. Yeah, thanks, Clueless. So I'll talk. I don't, there's not actually a lot to say about the making of Clueless in and of itself. It's just like they thought they had a funny idea for the movie and then they made it and it went pretty well. It's not like one of those classic troubled productions or anything like that. Amy Heckerling is a fairly famous female director, which is still an anomaly as much as they try and not make it one. And a comedy director, She her big break was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I have never seen. I do not recommend. I think it's pretty evil. But it's it was a touchstone for people and also very sexual much more so than clueless and but but she made her name with that and then she did comedy films europe national lampoons european vacation the worst of the national lampoons vacation movies not that i like any of them very much but you, I never liked any of them. Yeah, you've got, the first, you've got the first Vacation, which is okay, and then you've got Christmas Vacation, which a lot of people like, and you can kind of understand why, even if you don't like, but then in the middle you have European Vacation, which absolutely nobody likes. And then she did the classic Look Who's Talking films, where mm -hmm. Bruce Willis does the voice of a baby. <laughs> <laughs> she also did a pretty funny gangster spoof called Johnny Dangerously with, Heard of that. with Michael Keaton. It's okay. I don't know. Nobody should go out of their way. But it is kind of in the airplane genre, and it's got some laughs in it. There's a part where Johnny Dangerously says, I'm just a businessman. I'm, I'm, I'm not a gangster. And then you hear someone in the crowd say, yeah, and I'm the Pope. And then it pans over, and it's actually the Pope standing there, played by Dom DeLuise. <laughs> uh, so it's like that level of comedy, <laughs> which I've. And he's like, "Ah, oh, your excellence, your holiness." So it's, if you, if you like young Mr. Mom era Michael Keaton kind of being all dangerous and sexy and stuff, then it's kind of fun. But anyway, her classic. I mean, the thing that's going to be on her tombstone, I think, is Clueless and. It's a movie that she came up with. She actually pitched it as a television show first and for Fox. She wanted to do something about kids at California high school. And her big conceit was, I'm not going to make a movie about people who are down on themselves and angsty. I want, I want to have a really positive, happy main character. I mean, that, that was 
where the where, that was the genesis of this whole thing. And I think it is smart, and it is the thing that's so lovable about this movie. And she showed it. She showed this TV pilot to her agent, and he and or the studio executive said, "No, no, no, it's a movie. We really like this, but it's a movie." So they developed it into a movie. It was originally called No Worries. So that'll show you how much the idea of it's just a character that likes life. And so they had to find the right actress. And of course, every knit, Gwyneth Paltrow was up for it, anybody that was kind of a knit girl. But Amy Heckerling had the vision and the foresight to pick out Alicia Silverstone, who was nobody at the time. She'd been in a stupid yuppie nightmare kind of film called The Crush, where she's a girl that develops a crush on her high school teacher. And it's one of those stupid movies. She's like the nymphette that's like setting him up to get him in trouble. It's one of those things, kind of down downstream of fatal attraction kind of thing. But she was also known as the Aerosmith it girl at the time. Aerosmith had found her. She was a model and they had used her in three of her music videos. So if you were watching MTV at the time, she was a pretty ubiquitous face and body that you saw. But Heckerling was like, oh, this girl just seems like the right girl. She's got this positive energy. That's what I'm looking for. And the studio, it'd be a better story if the studio was like, no, we hate it. But the studio was like, oh, yeah, great. Go for it. So they did not choose Reese Witherspoon, Angelina Jolie, or any of the other people that were up for it. I think Reese might have come close. And you can see it. I mean, Legally mm-hmm. Blonde is kind of the same energy, yeah. although not nearly as good of a movie, I would say. Alicia Silverstone didn't get it. She didn't understand. She claims that she's just like a jeans and t-shirt girl. She doesn't. She didn't really understand the fashion, and it was like this character is terrible. She's so narcissistic. Reading it through the first time, but then she read it again, and she said, "Oh, this character is actually in her milieu, just a really positive, happy businesswoman that gets things done." And that's how. I'm going to play it. She's very sincere and very serious. And I'm not going to, as much as the script is winking, I'm not going to wink. I'm just going to play the sincerity of this character, which is, of course, the right choice. Zach Braff and Ben Affleck were both up for the Paul Rudd part, but Paul Rudd got it. Paul Rudd's big movie before that was Halloween 6 or something like that. One of the Halloweens. Paul Rudd wasn't anybody. Nobody was anybody in this movie. It's fairly low budget, which is nice. It gives them the freedom to actually hire people. This movie hits a certain budget and it's like, we have to have a star play the dad or we have to have a star play. But instead, you can just hire the right guy to play the dad. You can get Wallace Shawn from Princess Bride and My Dinner with Andre to be the teacher. And so this movie has a lot of nice up-and-comers and character roles that are filled out precisely because the studio was just like, yeah, you know, it's a $13 million movie. But of course, it did very well, made $56.6 million in the U.S. and Canada, which would come to much more in these inflated times, which is a very nice return for a movie that cost 12 to $13 million. The soundtrack went gold, plaid skirts and knee-high socks flew off the shelves, and teen movies were a thing. And Jane Austen adaptations, which I suppose I should mention that this is one, were a thing. Kind of the template of, we can take a literary classic and update it into a slacker high school comedy became a thing. So you have Taming of the Shrew become 10 Things I Hate About You, a much inferior (laughs) film to this one, I would say, and other things like that. I don't know what else off the top of my head, but it certainly became a thing. And so 
That's History of Clueless. It's one of those movies that's lasted. It's still kind of in the public consciousness. They'll bring it out on a new format every 10 years. And Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd will do some new interviews. And everybody will be happy to see them. It launched a generation of stars. It launched Silverstone and Rudd and Brittany Murphy. None of whom weirdly rudd was the one who lasted yeah silverstone i've never been able to find it doesn't seem like she avoided intentionally i'm sure she got a million scripts that were just more clueless more you just play share again for us and she's never talked that i've seen about avoiding it on purpose but it is interesting that everything that came after it didn't play to that you had the, you had a big catastrophe in batman and robin which obviously should have been a slam dunk easy thing to say yes to but famous terrible movie and her Batgirl is not one of the good parts of it but you watch this movie and you're like oh this is her generation's Meg Ryan she should have 10 of these that we can Mm -hmm. look back on but instead this is really it this is it I mean she's been in other dramas she's been good in other things but in terms of this high wattage star power that she brings to this movie it's like oh this is an A-lister I mean this really is this is the new Meg Ryan and then she did not become the new Meg Ryan. And Meg Ryan still had a little juice in her at the time, so I guess maybe we didn't need a new Meg Ryan. I think hmm. You've Got Mail would come out next year. But Meg Ryan's winding down because I don't think she's got much in the can after You've Got Mail. I guess Kate and Leopold is maybe 2000, but who cares about Kate and Leopold? Yeah, Heckerling likes complaint rock and alternative rock, which I think does do this movie service. The soundtrack, I think, is much better than it has any right to be and much it's, better, better than a, all the in, it's Im- imitators. It's a pretty fun yeah, it, better than it has the right to be is, I think, the right way to, to frame it. It's fun. And it's become a Broadway, one of those jukebox musicals where they take all the songs and they retrofit them to be sung by the characters and then call it a Broadway show. There is a clueless Broadway show that I don't know if it's, I don't think it's still running, but you could see it. You could probably download the soundtrack and they'll sing songs like Supermodel and other things that are in the movie, but they'll have clueless lyrics, which in the audience, that was a thing. So that is the history of the teenage movie. That is the history of Clueless. Weirdly, much like the rom-com, we don't get as many of them now. I mean, we're also completely the wrong age and interest level for them, so we wouldn't know if they did. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are things on Netflix that are touchstones or the Disney you know, high school musical thing is still pumping them out, I think. There's stuff that kids like, and I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to pretend like I do, but... In terms of these things kind of hitting the zeitgeist in such a way that we would even know about them, in terms of them playing in theaters, you just have to be a $200 million spectacle movie to get theater play in these desperate times. Or maybe you can get a week or two if you're an Oscar contender. But the, the mid-range movie for adults and young adults doesn't goes to streaming these days, which I think is too bad. Because I think it would be nice if teenagers had something to see on a Friday night together besides Marvel special effects. So, that is the history of the teenage movie. That is the history of Clueless. Now we must discuss the movie itself. What are your thoughts, Ben? It's got a good script. It's got it's, a wonderful script. Yep. Yeah, it's got all the performances are really fun. I don't have much else to say. It's fun. It's sweet. It's fun. It's sweet. It works. Jake? I don't think I'll see it again. It's just really too bad. But it's, in terms of the script, in terms of the dialogue, I just think it's it's as perfect a movie as you could want it to be, where you have, it's fun, it's lighthearted, it's funny, 
the deliveries all hit. I really, really enjoy everything about this movie except for the naked girls of it all. Yeah. But do something with that vid angel. You can't. You can't. But I think part of the f- the fun of the m- the movie, it, or at least talking about it, is that that the way they approach the adaptation of Emma, and then just something that we like to talk about in general, which is the truly successful pop artistry. Yes, we have this sort of like genre piece that somebody put that Susan Heckerling put real elbow grease into mm-hmm. making Sparkle as a script, Sparkle as a concept. And then you, you just get sort of magic in a in a bottle. Yeah, these kinds of movies are hard to do. Sort of have mm-hmm. two equal and opposite thoughts. Number one, this is impossible. There's a reason we don't get a bunch of these. And then number two, why don't we get ten of these a year? Yeah, just well, just put the effort in, guys. Yeah, just try. Give it a few more polishes. I don't accept that you can't when you have millions of dollars at your disposal. Pay some more writers. Spend another week. You see movies. I mean, 10 Things I Hate About You is a pretty good example. It's okay. But it's like, just give it another polish. Write some more good lines for these characters. Just Yeah, well, 10 Things I Hate About You is a really great example because it's an example of a movie that is, in fact, almost there. Mm -hmm. Like, I I have some affection for that movie. I can't remember the last time I watched it. But you brought it up, and I was like, oh, that's another one of those movies that kind of captures a vibe and has some... You know, even if, I mean, nobody likes Julia Stiles. Oh, Julia, yeah, yeah. Couldn't pull her name. Well, she is, in fact, the shrew, so I guess you're not supposed to. Yeah, but you've got a sort of, like, untapped talent in Heath Ledger playing, you know, exuding his charm on screen. you got a whole bunch of chemistry, and you've got sparks. Right. It's just like, man, another pass over that script would have made a, a, a cute little, fun, enjoyable Nah, I don't know. I, part part of the part of the fun of Clueless for me is like, hey, a movie that's just fun. That's an idea. How about that? Yeah, there's something I love that this movie avoids doing, which is there's not a big third act kerfuffle. We don't need Rudd and Silverstone to be torn apart by a misunderstanding. They don't have a big fight that there's eats up big... twenty minutes of screen time where we're feeling bad. I mean, it follows the basic beats of that thing in order to tell a entertaining story, but it doesn't feel the need to linger over things that other movies would be like expecting us to really invest in. It doesn't have the wedding singer kind of, Adam Sandler is going to go to Drew Barrymore's house to ask her out, but he's going to see her talking in the window and he's going to think she's talking to her boyfriend. And then like an idiot, he's not going to bring it up or talk to her and, I hate that stuff. I'm always so bored. Even it happened one night. I think we were all like, well, the last third of that movie where mm-hmm. Claudette Colbert goes home and then they have like, was his face is tooling around getting drunk. And we all know like the movie's not going to end with them apart. Yeah. Come let's on. Speed it up. Let's get. Yeah. So there's an, any number of things like that, that this movie doesn't do where it's just kind of humble and sweet and wants to be 90 minutes of fun and charm that are really smart. <laughs> Cher's humiliation is just, she's in the back seat of the car with Dion and her boyfriend mm-hmm. and Dion's driving on the freeway and there's stress and, and she just happens to get schooled in the fact that the guy she's into is gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, but, uh, you know, it's this uh, sort of 
Dion and her boy, boyfriend set piece on mm-hmm. the freeway. And He's a disco dancing Oscar Wilde <laughs> reading Streisand ticket holding friend of Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a great line. <laughs> it's like, yeah, as a kid, you know, you know, in the 90s watching that, you, you don't know what half of that actually means but right. man like that's really fun but it's interesting to try and he has tons of fun little things like that it mm-hmm. does well it's really it's a masterpiece of i want to talk about the emma adaptation of it all here in a sec but so i don't want to lose that thread but it is a masterpiece of comedic world building how do you create and establish the rules of your universe and and i think every movie but especially comedies has to establish the world and kind of make a contract with the audience and say these are the rules. These are how people act. This is how exaggerated it is. This is how they talk. This is how they talk. They don't talk like people in real life. Nobody actually. No, I have news for you. Even the valleyest of valley girls never talked like Cher. These people are not talking like real people. But there, there are recognizable human things within them. And it's just getting that mix, getting that cocktail right. And so, you know, you watch. So- how do we have snappy dialogue that feels sophisticated, play alongside ditzy valley girl stuff well it's just a really good high school is it yeah for all the wealthiest and richest and most successful people in la so duh like they may talk like a valley girl but also her dad's a high-powered lawyer for a reason and well and also he's i don't know if he's shady exactly but he's first generation money probably like that that in and of itself and britney murphy's character there's so many things where you're like oh Actually, the way that this universe is set up very carefully, these people think they're classy. They think they're a lot of class. But how much class are they, actually? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You understand who these people are. You understand they're kind of nouveau riche. And they make sense. The movie has its own internal logic. And that's such a... I hate the complaint of somebody watches a movie and the people wouldn't talk like that. Well, nobody ever talks like anybody talks in drama. That's why it's drama. You, You listen to a real people real person talk and they say, um, mm, uh, mm, mm, they stumble over their words. That you don't get snappy back and forth dialogue like right. you do in a Aaron Sorkin movie. Right. But Aaron Sorkin, you, you watch the West Wing and you know what the rules are. You know that we're in Aaron Sorkin's 1940s. We lob ideas around and dress each other down world. And that's what he likes. And maybe you're not here for it. That's fine. But don't accuse him of like Aaron Sorkin doesn't know how people talk. Aaron Sorkin is perfectly aware that nobody talks like they do in an Aaron Sorkin movie. Just like Amy Heckerling is perfectly aware that nobody talks like they do in Clueless. It's just a matter of making, making contract with the audience and setting it up in a way that we understand and that it has internal logic and that it reflects something about human nature as we understand it. So you watch like a bad, say, Adam Sandler movie. And it doesn't work because the internal logic is inconsistent. You're like, these other characters seem smart. Why are they putting up with the most obnoxious man in the world? Uh Why don't they kick him off the football team? Why is everybody okay with this? And it's like, you can turn the exaggeration down. You can make him a little bit more realistic so that it makes sense why they'd put up with him. Or you can cartoonify everybody. And so it just becomes absurd. There's all different ways that you can solve the problem and give it its own zany internal logic. But that's what you have to do to have a successful comedy. But the Marx Brothers exist in a world full of stuffed shirts who are authoritarian jerks <laughs> and just want to go to the opera. And the Marx Brothers exist to bring chaos into the world, into that world, and to destroy it. And no one will ever understand. 
And Margaret Dumas, the fat lady that Groucho always gets teamed with, he's going to say the most insulting things. And she's just kind of going to stare at him and not understand and be completely befuddled, even though he's just like called her a cow or something. And those are the rules and they're established. And we understand like it's not how it would happen in real life, but we get it. We get what the rules. This is how Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd operate. And Clueless is a masterpiece of that kind of thing. And it's difficult. And so much of the comedy. So like repeat that line, the Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand. I wrote it down. Most of my notes are just lines I wrote down. He's a disco dancing Oscar Wilde reading Streisand ticket holding friend to Dorothy. And then the punchline, he's gay. Right. (laughs) And then, oh, I'm totally bugging. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's your contrast. That's that beautiful Oscar Wilde, Barbra Streisand, Dorothy uh, disco dancing setup for the payoff of he gay. I'm totally bugging. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's part of the comedic world building of of how she pulls this off is we can talk like this, Mm -hmm. but then we're always going to default to that sort of like lowest common denominator lingo in the next sentence. Right. Well, and, we're going to have some tensions like we're going to have like Paul Rudd kind of exists outside of it all a little bit like he he's in another movie, but he's supposed to be in another movie. That's the entire point of the character. Right. And so he's the one person you can't have. If there was just a random high school person that had the same energy as Paul Rudd, that might really disrupt things. Because as soon as you have someone that straight in Cher's world, it's Cher's world starts to crumble. But if the right person is making Cher's world crumble, then it works for the plot. Well, mm-hmm. and Cher's going to exit her movie. Yes. And she's going to join Paul Rudd's movie. Right. And that's part of like that that illusion is actually something that high, high school students have. Like they're in their own world, they're in their own movie that is their own high school. Right. And everything changes. The whole movie of life changes the minute you graduate and you go on to college or whatever's next. And all the lines and distinctions and worlds and cliques and popularity stuff, all that just it's just gone overnight. And Cher, when she checks into Paul Rudd, she checks out of all of that. Right. And that's part of, you know, part of the turn and part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he has to exist on an island in his own movie for that to even mm-hmm. happen. Well, he can do it because it's playing sideways. So he just plays a little even more sideways. This is dumb. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which Paul Rudd is pretty good at. And then you have a character like... I think it's really smart. I think it could go bad in all kinds of ways, but it's like the dad. The dad has to sort of have a foot in both worlds. Mm-hmm. And so it's just beautiful what they do with the dad. I mean, he's just sort of dumb and oblivious enough to make the plot work. But then they, there's that great moment. I think it's one of the best – it's one of the keys to why the movie works where Paul Rudd's obviously falling for her. He doesn't know it. I forget what the context is, but Paul Rudd walks off and then the dad has – a knowing look. Right. And it's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. the dad's actually in on the joke. The dad actually yeah. understands his daughter better than, and, and, than she does. Than she does. Yeah. And it's like, that's smart. So many hacks would just make the dad dumb or just make him a foil or just make him this or that or the third. But having a precisely calibrated dad this way, a dad who's actually not a terrible disciplinarian, he's actually a better, much better dad than Emma's dad. Well, yeah. And he's a dad who, at the end of the day, whatever you want to say, he understands the way the world works. And so he's, in some sense, more concerned with Cher's education than his teachers. It's like, well, okay, your grades, whatever, they matter. But also, your ability to make your way in the world, 
that really matters. So like mm-hmm. you negotiated all these <laughs> grades up. I, mean, Sweetie, I couldn't be happier than if they were based on real grades. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And there might have been a time when I would have looked at, at that and just laughed. But there's part of me that looks at that now, and maybe that's just my jadedness with the educational system. That's like, I'm kind of with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, you understand she has real qualities. She right. could be successful. She could walk into any yep. company. I mean, some of it's based on her advantages. Some of it's based on her looks. But the fact is, she has her advantages. She has those. She has her looks. And she knows how to use and them. And that's it. part of what he wants her to be able to do. And that's like... Yeah, he's really... He's not a bad dad. I mean, he could be bad in so many ways. But, I mean, for crying out loud, he even sends her upstairs to put more clothes on. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, she's, and she just sort of cheerfully... Well, of course... Daddy. Yeah, I was just, I forget <laughs> what she says, but. <laughs> I was just going to, she goes and puts on a sheer, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but yeah. still. <laughs> yeah, the relationship is sweet and you understand it. And it does have some of that Emma vibe of she takes care of him, but in a actually much healthier way than, uh, which I, by the way, I love that her mom died in a freak lip section <laughs> accident. In a routine <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Freak accident during a routine, routine, li- a, routine. a lipo- liposuction. <laughs> yeah. So many different layers to that. <laughs> I mean, there's also just the fact in terms of comedy world building and putting us in a world where we it's precisely calibrated so we can understand it. First person narration. First person narration can often be a crutch and just a way of getting expo- exposition out. But having Cher narrate this movie, having the camera adopt her point of view and she says, oh, Snickers, and it stops in the mm-hmm. middle of a dramatic monologue to look at the Snickers. It's like, okay, so a little bit of what feels exaggerated and colorful and garish about this movie is actually just in Cher's head. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not actually seeing an objective version of Ty or Dion or any of these characters. We're seeing the way that Cher thinks about some of these people. Yeah, well, and you see that when we see the shift in how the stoners move. Yeah. Over the course of the movie where Travis Birkenstock, his shift. Yes, exactly. Uh, that he takes is actually just, it's not really him. It's Cher's perspective that actually shifts. Right. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know what else to say about it besides it's really smart. And I, well, I guess the other key to the comedy world building is just delicious Silverstone and the way she plays the character and it's great casting. And the fact that she does play the character sincerely, mm-hmm. she does not play... I think this sort of thing can be done well, but often I don't like it when a character, when an actor is commenting on a character as they play the character. I'll give you an example. It's a movie I like. It's a performance I like, but uh, George Clooney in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You can tell George Clooney is a lot smarter than the character that he's playing. And he's playing a dumb character. And he knows he's playing a dumb character. And he's signaling. He wants you to know that he knows that he's playing a character that is beneath him. You compare that to, I forget the guy's name, that plays Delmar in yeah, Oh Brother, Where Art awesome. Go for Everett. Um, he's just playing a dumb character. Uh, what's his name? He's uh, Tim, some stuff. Tim Blake Nelson. There we go. And John Turturro is the other guy, and he's just playing the character. But George Clooney is playing... Well, I think, what I, I think the reason that works is because the Coen brothers are doing it at Clooney's expense. Yes, Actually, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, I think the Coen brothers and that, that screenplay in particular is ahead of everyone. And it's a fantastic movie and it'd be fun to talk about one day. But and so I'm not really criticizing Clooney. I'm just saying I think Brad Pitt can be guilty of this. It, he, it's hard for Brad Pitt to play a character that's dumber than Brad Pitt. And when he does it, it's like, there's Brad Pitt being dumb. And I don't have a specific example in mind, but he can pull it off sometimes. Yeah, he can pull it off. He can be funny. But I don't like when a person's playing an evil character and they, they're 
sort of saying, hey, I know I'm evil. You know, I'm not really evil, but I'm, I'm playing an evil character. Isn't this fun? Um, I can't blur the distinction between myself and a character, and I'm afraid that you can't either. Right. I mean, it can really work. I mean, somebody like Jack Nicholson can say, hey, I'm Jack Nicholson, and don't we all just enjoy what I'm doing? And it works for the energy of the characters that he plays. So I'm not saying that it's always the wrong choice. I am saying that I think there's something humble and sweet about somebody who can just commit to the character, whatever the character is. And that is what Alicia Silverstone does here. She doesn't play sideways to Cher. She doesn't, I think Cher is a pretty easy character to play sideways to. I think she's an easy character to say, I, the actress, am smarter than this character, but I'm playing a ditzy character. But instead, she just plays everything absolutely straight. Cher does not think of Cher as a comedic character, and Cher does not do things for comedy. She just exists in a world that is funny to us because we see the bigger picture that Cher does not until such time as she does. Um, And I think that's the key to the success of this movie and the success of this character. And she's really great. I mean, it is, she is this movie. I mean, as much as some other people pop and some other things pop. Yeah. Well, if you don't have her uh, at the center of it, pulling off every line and every facial expression, then nothing else really works. But then once she does, then the tie can be right. just really awesome and fun and adorable. And a lot can be done with that character. A lot can be done with simply how one dimensional a character like Dion is right. like she ends up being really fun and sparkling. Yes. But you need that central performance to, to ha- anchor the whole to anchor, movie. anchor the whole thing. And it needs to be, the movie's really smart again about the places where it lets her be sincere, like where it doesn't have a joke. The whole section where Elton tries to get her in the car. That's Elton, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of jokes, actually. I mean, there's enough of them. It's not mm-hmm. like a drag. It's not, here's the serious part of the movie with the sad music. It's, it exists in the same silly world. But we play her emotions as real. We play her as a human being who, who would actually feel bad about the mistake that she's made and about the, this jerk of a guy and about um, – I mean, the, actually, the movie knows it, it's very well calibrated because then she gets mugged. And yeah. that's allowed to be completely exaggerated. That's just yeah. that's just silly. That's just the the cherry on the. the yeah, you can have my phone and you can have my purse, but don't make me get on the ground and ruin the dress. Right. Get down and count to a hundred. One, two. Is he gone? I need to get up and not ruin <laughs> my dress. Right. You play that mugging straight, and the movie becomes too serious. Like you need that to be silly. Right. But you want to play the scene with Elton relatively straight, minus a few throwaway lines. Um, and, the, and the movie's just really well calibrated in that way now i think we need to talk about the austin adaptation of the of it all which will allow me to get to my obvious criticism of paul rudd which we will perhaps decide is unfair or fair but i actually think it opens up my criticism of every jane austen movie ever made i think i figured out why there's never been a jane austen movie that i've just loved and and you could say well, Nathan, you just love Jane Austen's books so much that no movie could please you. And there's probably some truth to that. But I actually think there's never been a completely successful adaptation of any Jane Austen property. There's, there have been many of them with their charms, but they all have this one fatal flaw that Clueless also has. And I don't know, should I just get to that or should we talk? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it it's surprises me to say that you just realized it 
seems obvious. Yeah, I suppose it is obvious, but there there has there has never been a Jane Austen. Here's how you cast a Jane Austen movie. Here's how you should do it. You have to have two big stars. You cannot have a like both of your leads have to have star wattage. They have to have real screen charisma. And this never happens. It's always lopsided. It's it's always the new Pride and Pre- the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice. It's Kara Knightley and she pops. And then there is this dude. The old Pride and Prejudice. It's Colin Firth and he pops. And then it's a lady. Uh, they, you they, didn't like her? You didn't think that she worked? No, she's fine. She's fine. But huh. but what you really need is Darcy and Elizabeth both need to shine. And I don't think that they both pop off the screen. I mean, that people love that one. And I think it's nice in that one that the guy pops off the screen. Because um, that usually what happens, certainly in all the Emma adaptations, what happens is you have an Emma played by a Gwyneth Paltrow or an Anna Taylor-Joy. And then you have the other guy. And I'm not complaining about, what is it, Jeremy? Jeremy Northam. He's quite good in that Gwyneth Paltrow movie. Um, and his badly done scene is far and away the best. Um, and he has like the real kind of power to come against her. But what you really want is like, I don't know, Alan Rickman's a little bit old for Paltrow, but you want a star. You, you want Knightley to be equally matched as an actor and as a personality with Emma. I mean, they both pop and are equally matched in the book. And so you can't have the girl be a star and then the guy just be a character actor. I mean, you could have two really good character actors. That could work too. But what you have here in Clueless, I mean, I could bring it back to Clueless, is uh, Rudd is just fine. I mean, I like him. Um, I've always liked him. I like him in most things. I like him in Ant-Man. I mean, I think a little bit of Rudd goes a long way. But whatever, he's funny. Um, But you have Alicia Silverstone just like burning off the screen and she's like, you know, she does feel like she's going to be her generation's Meg Ryan or her generation's Marilyn Monroe or Audrey Hepburn, like whatever you want to compare it to. She is obvious. This is a star turn for her. And then you've got, I think it's indicative that we say Cher and Paul Rudd. We don't say that. There's There's this great character of Cher and then there's, Ah, Paul Rudd's like playing the part. What you really need is for Josh to be so iconic, so charged, so... That Paul Rudd for the rest of his life is Josh. Is Josh. Instead of Paul Rudd. Yeah, like, oh, oh yeah, Paul Rudd d- did a great job. So I don't know who you get. It's interesting to contemplate Affleck When you come to Ant-Man, it's like, oh, yeah, Josh from Clueless. Right, exactly. And instead, I forgot that... I always forget that Paul Rudd's in this movie. And again, I like him. I mean, he's just fine. He's just fine. Just like lots of the Austin men are just fine. But I really think, like, if I was going to cast a Jane Austen movie, I would just say, I don't care about any of the other parts. Cast them with the best British character actors. But the two leads have to be equally matched. You, um, But you, wait, you really don't think that, I mean, okay, here, I'll be, I'll be devil's advocate. I haven't seen 90s Emma for a long time. I just remember liking it. But, yeah. But Jeremy Northam, I mean, Mr. Knightley is like a character, he's super important, but his deal is to be in the background. Yeah, I mean, I think he can... And com- Jeremy Northam is like, you know, you just want someone with weight in yeah, the background. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think Jeremy Northam gives a great performance. I mean, I think he's a good Mr. Knightley. Uh, I'm just saying, you really want it to be Cary Grant. I mean, not Cary Grant, but you know what I mean? Like, you want the guy who can just sit in the background and you don't stop looking at him because it's the movie star over mm-hmm. there in the background. Akin to, it's Gwyneth Paltrow. She's on the screen. Mm-hmm. I like to look at Gwyneth Paltrow. I am drawn to the energy. Mm-hmm. Of Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, get Robert Downey Jr. to play Mr. Knightley. Not really, but 
that's that's the kind of yoking that you want. Huh. And, I, and I'd say the same thing for pride. In the well, pride. that's one of the things about Emma is like, um, it's obvious to everybody in the book that there are only two people here that actually match and it's Emma and Knightley and everybody in, we get a lot of the, the, you know, the book, the whole book is from Emma's perspective. So it's from Emma's sort of twisted, right. You know, way of looking at the world, but you can be, you, you can read that book and just step back and see it. Well, everybody thinks that Knightley and Emma are the only, like they're, they're in a class of their own here right? and they're their own thing. And, uh, also, Emma is exactly wrong about everything, and Knightley's right about exactly everything throughout right. this entire book. And yeah, you almost want to say cast the unknown up and coming ingenue as Emma, and cast the star right as Knightley. Like he's and, and yes, he's he doesn't play to his star qualities. He doesn't come because in. So much of the joke of Emma is just like you know, it's Cher thinks she's right about everything. Yeah, and everybody knows she's not. And part of why we know she's not is because Cary Grant was here. Cary Grant was yeah. there all along, mm-hmm. saying, "You're an idiot. You're wrong. You're an idiot. You're wrong." And Don't everybody you think that this is what's actually going on here. And she's like, "No." Hmm. And everybody in the movie, not just Emma, but everybody's like, "Oh, we take it for granted." <laughs> no pun intended. That Cary Grant's in our movie, and we as an audience are like, "Guys." Cary Grant. I mean, that's actually what Colin Firth brings to Darcy. You, you don't have to love Darcy, and I don't love that Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Um, but Colin Firth does bring that quality of, oh, there's the knight in shining army. There's the guy. I mean, it's, like I'd say the same thing about uh, Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. There's a lot that I don't like about his performance. There's a lot that I don't like as uh, about the character as conceived by Jackson and his screenwriters. But Viggo Mortensen shows up in that bar smokes that pipe in the shadows and it's like oh, there's a movie star in the background strider hmm. we know that he's something bigger in movie terms like he's just popping off the screen he's exciting to watch in a way so clueless works a lot of austin adaptations work and clueless works just fine and the relationship between rudd and silverstone works just fine but it is interesting to contemplate ben affleck in the part could he hmm. could he have actually brought more of that a, I think slightly more masculine energy. I think uh, mm-hmm. Rudd is a little too complaint rocky as conceived by the script and played by the character. And maybe that's unfair. Maybe I'm, I'm just, I just want it to be more in a, of an actual Emma adaptation than it wants to be. Um, I mean, given what it is, you wouldn't want it to be as uh, charged as, as Emma actually is. You, you couldn't actually do a one-to-one with the book. I mean, A, you'd have to find an actor that was way older than her and that wouldn't translate very well into modern times. And they have to, not just because they're lame, woke Hollywood, but, but just any idiot would simmer the story way down to put it in this, this context. So I can't be too annoyed with that. I do think maybe they could have come up with a better badly done analog since that is everybody's favorite moment in Emma. But they, they didn't even give us an analog, no. really. Yeah. I mean, they, he's kind of like calling her a brat the whole time, but there's not just the one moment. The moment where... I think Rudd actually could have done done that, and it would have helped. But I think what we have is perfectly sweet. Um, I just think, yeah. Uh, Paul Rudd is maybe my... the Maybe the Achilles heel of the movie, uh, if it has one. I don't think it really has one, but I think he is... He holds uh, it back. He holds it back a little bit. Or maybe he doesn't hold it back. I, I he's just fine. I think if they had just given him a scene 
where he could where he really hurt her feelings. Yeah. He doesn't have to say the words badly done. He just has to be a truth teller in a way that cuts right. and hurts her feelings. And he's he, he plays it being a truth teller, you know. He is a truth teller to her throughout the movie and that's part of what she always loves about him. Right. But it's always as the sort of, you know, it's always a little tongue in cheek. It's right. never escalated to the point of like, I'm actually going to let loose and hurt you. Right. I'm yeah. going to tell you exactly how you hurt uh, uh, Ty. <laughs> Ty, yeah. Yeah, and that for, for that reason, her redemption and repentance and all that is a little cheaper and, and then, than it should be if it's an actual adaptation of Emma. And actually a little, even just forgetting Emma in the terms of this character is, in this story, it's a little too easy. You could turn this screenplay up the last act a little bit, a couple of notches, and not just have she learns to save the whales and feels a little bit bad about yeah. what happened with Ty. And we do spend an awful lot of time on Cher doesn't understand that this guy's gay, which maybe played like gangbusters in 95. Maybe people weren't as ahead of it as we are now. I don't know. Maybe they were exactly as ahead of it as we are, we are now. I don't, I, I just don't remember. But it is kind of like, oh, there's the gay guy. At the- I don't know. I feel like the movie's <laughs> like from the minute he steps into the doorway, we kind of know what where it's going. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's very Emma. I mean, Emma, you you are never not a thousand percent ahead uh, of the uh, plot. Right. Some of it in ways that you suspect you're, you're not quite sure whether Jane Austen meant for you to be or not. So with the Frank Churchill stuff, you're like, maybe this actually was supposed to be a surprise, but it surprises mm-hmm. exactly no one. And certainly Mr. Elton and all that stuff is, and all the stuff with Harriet. I will say in terms of adaptation, they've never done anything close to a good Harriet. And Ty actually probably is the best. The best Harriet. The best yeah. Harriet. I think so. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why she's so hard to get. I guess it's because we don't have class the way that um, the way that the Brits did in Jane well, Austen's time. Well, just simply time. conceiving Ta- Harriet as sort of a stoner. Yeah. You know, does a whole lot to just give her. I've never had straight friends before. Right. <laughs> like little things like that that let let her sort of exist as an innocent. What you have to do is, you know, in Austin, it's almost Dickensian how innocent, sort of sweet she is in right. that class structure. But you can, if you make her a stoner, you know, and all these other things, she can have this whole other vibe of sort of naivete and innocence right. while taking away other things from her that, I don't know, counterbalance that. It works really well. Well, and it does, it is, it does show where, oh, if you want to do a modern day Jane Austen, high school is actually the place with the class structures, with the, oh crap, we're still having to deal with our parents' authority, like all the stuff that 20 year olds in Jane Austen's time dealt with, if you want to find the analog, you have to go to a 16 year old. Yeah. And then you, and then you have to take the story down to that level. Right. Which is what the other thing that people kind of struggle with. And Heckerling had no, no conscience issue doing. Right. So let's just take every aspect of the story down to the level of high school. Let's strip away, you know, Knightley's going to be a guy who's into, you know, his, Complaint rock and right. reads Nietzsche and yeah, her conception of who a modern day nightly would actually be is pretty lame. He's, but it's just bringing everything down to. Right. If we're going to bring Emma down to a valley girl, we're going to bring Nightly down to a guy at college that 
you know. Well, there again, you compare it to 10 Things I Hate About you use high schoolization of Taming of the Shrew. And it's like, well, Heckerling got a lot more of Emma into her story than they managed to get of Shakespeare into theirs. There's still just enough of of what we like about Jane Austen that we respond to some of the dynamics and stuff like that. Again, a stronger conception of Josh and maybe a stronger actor. I really love Frank Churchill as just the gay. (laughs) 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 I think that's a pretty fun take on Frank Churchill. Yeah, I mean, arguably well-deserved take on Frank Churchill. What else is there to say? Most of my notes about this movie are just like lines that I liked, you know. Be seeing you. Yeah, I hope not sporadically. (laughs) 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 Listen, kid, you think the death of Sammy Davis left an opening in the Rat Pack? (laughs) You like Billy Holiday? I love him. Uh, (laughs) And then the look he gives. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair to Paul Rudd and their relationship, they do have nice chemistry. Yeah, And when they come together at the end, it's sweet. And when they're sort of realizing it about each other in Act 3, you know. Mm-hmm. All the kind of, do you have any idea what you're talking about? No, do I sound like I do? All, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're self-aware and fun. And as I've said multiple times, Ben Affleck was the other guy that was majorly in talks for this. And it would it is interesting to imagine. What that would have been. What that would have been. I suspect maybe slightly better. I don't know. Too. He's a guy from the era that's the right age that yeah. you could imagine could do a a pretty good job. Well, it's hard to not read back his uh, the gravity that he's taken on. I know. Yeah, exactly. Like Versus ba- Batman, the gravity that Paul Rudd hasn't. Right. right. Exactly. Paul Rudd now they hire him from Ghostbusters, and he doesn't even play a character. He's just like the guy that mumbles a comedic song as marshmallow people launch themselves. Like he just does huh. shtick. Right. Yeah, um, and he, you don't know that Ben Affleck's performance would have been very much different at all. Right. It's, it's not like Ben Affleck was playing characters with great gravity then. When was Goodwill Hunting? Uh, around that same time. Probably actually earlier. I want to say 93, 94. Oh, yeah. I could see it then. He yeah. could, he could. I, I never saw Goodwill Hunting. So he's, he's really good in it. He's good in it. Yeah. It's one of those movies that was always made fun of mm-hmm. that I just. I understand the conceit of it, and I hate the conceit of it, so I'd, I've never been tempted to watch it. I, I didn't mind it when I saw it, but I've never wanted, felt tempted to go back, I guess. I also didn't mind it when I saw it, but I think it was because I was immature, and since I've thought about it more, I hate a lot of the conceits in it. Um, but Ben Affleck is good, inarguably. Everyone's good in it, actually. Yep. But, but Ben Affleck in particular. So, yeah, I think he might have been a superior choice in terms of both Star Wattage, Gravity, and... Um, I don't know, but you don't know. I mean, the movie works as is. Maybe Ben Affleck throws off the balance and we don't remember Clueless now. I mean, maybe he's just the wrong choice for it somehow. I mean, Harkerling thought it, certainly thought so, and she made Clueless, so can't complain too much. Um, and a lot of the problem, like you guys have been saying, a lot of the problem with Josh isn't so much anything that Paul Rudd does wrong as the script just doesn't give him enough nightly qualities. <laughs> Is there anything else to talk about? We've got old computers in this movie. Yep, we do. Movies from 95 are officially old period pieces now. Mm-hmm. Who'd have thought it? This movie feels old. And she really needs her computer to help her discover what clothes 
with outfits match. <laughs> yeah, that's a little silly. The Polaroid thing makes total sense. The Polaroid thing, I'm sure people took and did and even did before and celebrities do it and it's a thing. But the the computer matching thing is uh, a little silly. Well, Sean's great. And yeah, he's pretty fun. It's a little, little underused. I feel like I've, you know. Yeah. So, uh, Every scene with him is pretty fun. He's just sort of like stuck with all these kids who don't want to be there. And he. Yeah, he does. He, <laughs> it's the kind of guy that can bring a lot to a little. Um, but knowing what he's capable of, I do kind of feel like, you know. I'm and it, the romance with Miss Geist is fun. Yeah, no. It's great. And that's where, like, yeah, you take Wallace Shawn out of that. Just put some generic guy. Then suddenly you have a, a subplot that drags instead of pops. Yep. <laughs> yep, for sure. Um, I love both of her speeches that she gives in class. Those are those, those all, both uh-huh. make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and Alicia Silverstone does something that's just so darn adorable, which is every time she gives this little speech like that, she pops her gum and she's, she has this big smile. Like she, she gives it real seriously, but then she smiles at the end like she's uh-huh. posing for a picture or something right, like yeah. that. And it's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm so happy that I just gave this <laughs> this amazing speech. Those um, are, I mean, the, those little classroom scenes with the speeches are such little movies within the movie. Yes, you know, and even that they're treated that way, I think, is super fun. And in in some respect, they walk a knife's edge where you've got like you know, if, if Travis is going to like stand up and give an acceptance speech for uh, having the most tardies. Mm-hmm and thank McDonald's for making sausage biscuits uh-huh. and yes. bus driver for taking a it, chance, taking a <laughs> chance on him. Like, right. That whole thing is so close to just not working and making you be like, Oh, come on guys, get over yourselves. Right. But I think for the most part, every one of those scenes really just brings a next level of fun and character to the yeah, movie as a whole. I think you're right. And it's very easy for those scenes to fail, uh, to be too over the top or pull you out of the movie or, just be yeah the the overaged actress who is the share clone is is really i think probably the biggest uh mistake of the movie i'm trying to remember there's just that uh the redhead yeah she's like in the first scene you know they're, they're doing the debate together and she's clearly okay yeah she's too old and just doesn't quite yeah yeah i remember yeah i didn't mind her no i just think that she's like She's borders on breaking the the rubber band. We've stretched, we've stretched, Mm -hmm. and the magical realism can only go so far, and she's about to. But I don't think she breaks it. I don't think she breaks it either. I just think that she's the closest thing in the movie. And the tardy speech is like that. And a few of the, like, here comes the dude, and he's in slow motion. You know, those those kinds of things can border on that. I I think we're probably all keyed into it because – you don't have to like our stuff, but whether you like it or not, you, if you've listened to any of our stuff like Chip and Lance or the Ville or anything like that, you realize we sort of like to ex- play in that magical realism. Like how, how far can we push things before we break? Mm-hmm. How much can we just exist in witty dialogue world? And how much do we have to pull back and say, well, actually this character wouldn't have a zinger right now. And how silly can Chip McGregory be without making the the universe suddenly not matter anymore. Like suddenly we can't have emotional stakes in this because he can just do anything and mm-hmm. be anyone. And those are really hard things to yep. get right. And they're really easy things to get wrong. And you don't have to think we get them right, but it's just something we've played around with a lot. It's just always fascinating to just watch somebody who toes the line, whether they fail 
or succeed, it's it's fascinating to watch and sort of examine like what makes this work or what makes it doesn't work. Right. What makes it doesn't work? What makes it doesn't work? <laughs> what makes it doesn't work? <laughs> what makes it doesn't work, senor? Uh, so, and this is just, I think, one of those movies that... It just works. It just works top, sort of top to bottom, and that's pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing feat of artistry. Well, we're about to record our Glass Onion episode, which you, listener, will already have heard, but... Did I, have you guys ever see Ryan Johnson's Brick? No. no. So Never wanted to. No. Well, I saw it because I'm an idiot. But it is set in high school and it is a noir pastiche where everyone talks like they're a gumshoe from a, a Marlowe thing. Like it's Chandler mm-hmm. dialogue. Right. But in high school. And so the whole conceit is they're high school kids doing high school things, but there's a murder and there's a, you know, and they're all. And so it's this really specific world that you're supposed to enter into this kind of magical realist world and i guess you could say it has its own internal logic i'm not sure where it violates things but i just spat it out of my mouth like i could just not ever bring myself i just couldn't get over like why are these people talking like this nobody talks like this this doesn't make sense who acts like this there's no analog in my life like what what high school is this why why are you all acting like you're in a noir nobody acts like that my brain rejected it there was just no way into the conceit there's all kinds of movies like that i think high school movies are particularly guilty of that kind of thing where it's just like who are these people why are these people Uh, 10 things i hate about you it's it's okay it's kind of fun but one of the gimmicks in that movie one of of their comedic world building conceits is that everybody's a little dirtier than you expect them to be the teacher is writing like a sex novel or something i don't remember what all the things are but it's stuff like that where you expect someone to kind of be chaste and modest because they would have to be in their position, but then they're being kind of crude and crass. And to me, in addition to that, just being a lame kind of hacky, not that funny thing. It's also just like, who are these people? Why hasn't this teacher been fired? Why aren't these parents like getting in trouble for this? Like I do not buy a world where this happens. And so I, some of it's just movie magic. Some of it's just pixie dust as Jake likes to say, but for whatever reason, a movie like Clueless, you don't ask those questions, even though you're in a world that's just as heightened and ridiculous and exaggerated. And you know, in any number of bad movies, all you do is ask those questions and you don't like the movie because you're just like, I, I, I don't understand why are people putting up with this? I mean, 10 Things I Hate About You, I haven't seen it for a long time. If I have to guess, it's probably because it's played straight enough that in certain parts that then when it's exaggerated, you're confused. Mean Girls is actually a really successful movie that I think a lot of people of a certain generation would consider it to be their clueless. And it, it walks the tightrope really well and uh, has, has nice world building and stuff like that. I think Mean Girls and Clueless are probably two of the best high school movies, a genre that I often do not like very much. Uh, anything else you guys want to say? Anything you want to highlight? Any... Favorite lines, favorite moments. We got a 2001 reference. Yep, that was pretty great. The monolith. Mm-hmm. Yep, it was funny that they pulled that off. That would have pulled you out of the world in a lot of movies. Yeah, but it was just kind of... Just like part and parcel of the, they take this so seriously, but this is really dumb. Yep. But also it's pretty funny. Yep. Uh, Brittany Murphy is great. It's too bad she died. She was. She had some real star quality, although she was never better that she was here. I think maybe she was better at playing the kind of second fiddle than she was at taking the lead, taking the lead. 
Yeah, but she's a great splash of color here and arguably the second most effective performance <coughs> in the movie. I'm just looking through my notes. Gar's title fonts. This movie has them. I think that's it. I think that's all I have to say. The funniest line in the movie is a uh, is is the line. Also, sometimes you have to show a little skin that reminds guys of being naked, and then they think of sex. Yep, funniest line in the movie. Yep. I'm sorry to have to say that, but it's just true. It's a very <laughs> funny line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do like that they call it complaint rock. I did write that down. Uh, that's not a phrase I remember getting kicked around that much, but it is what Radiohead should be called. And I like Radiohead. I think Josh has good taste. I think Amy Harkling has good taste in music all around. Good soundtrack. <laughs> Rolling with the homies. <laughs> it has, has their song. It's such a awesome choice. <laughs> I hate 90s soundtracks. I, I hate 90s soundtracks with a burning passion, but this one is good. Josh's intro is fake plastic trees. Yeah. I mean, how can, I mean, come on. How can you argue with that? <laughs> it's I, just, it's still all unfamiliar to me. You well, didn't grow up with any of that music. Nope. No. Well, we each had a different experience growing up, as we've discussed on this very podcast, on this very episode of this very podcast. All right. Uh, ben, how many plaid shirts and knee high socks out of 400 <coughs> do you give to Clueless? Oh, if I'm just thinking about uh, the stuff that's not immodest or sex joke related, except for that one joke you mentioned, <laughs> I give it, <laughs> I give it like, did you say 400, 380 out of 400? I think. 380, okay. I think I give it, yeah, pretty high. If I just think of it as a total movie experience, I go way lower because I was really uncomfortable. Yeah. So I don't know what I go to. Uh, I won't even give it a rating. I'll just say it's a lot lower. Jake, same question? Uh. Same answer, except 400 for the first one. <laughs> okay. I'm going to try and actually collate it all and put it together. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a good movie. I'll give it a 300 plaid skirts and knee-high socks. I think it's, yeah, it has the problems we mentioned. But very entertaining. Great screenplay. Really well-written. And Alicia Silverstone, what a shame that she didn't give us five more of these. I mean, I would have been there for the further adventures of Cher. Like, if she literally gave us five more of these, Mm -hmm. I would have been happy. This is a fun world. She got some kind of huge contract out of this that nothing happened with, I think. Yeah. She formed her own production company, I saw, and did this movie, what, not baggage. They just should have gone for her instead of Reese Witherspoon for Legally Blonde and then. Yeah. I mean, I don't love that movie, but, you know, I mean, Reese Witherspoon does her job. She's, She's inarguable. Yeah. I mean,. I think Batman and Robin was a real career killer. Clooney took a while to recover from that. Chris O'Donnell never recovered from that. Yeah. Uh, Arnold was, Schwarzenegger, it didn't matter. It His didn't, career is unstoppable. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it really is. Right. It just doesn't matter what he does. Yeah. Well, who, the else, arch- who else was in that? Uh, well, Uma Thurman, and she took a hit, although she came back. But she's so weird already that she, I don't know, she's. Yeah, her career's been weird, but Tarantino liked her, so that, that didn't hurt anything. Uh, cause I think kill bill is after that. So, and who else? There's a fourth, I guess it's just the three. It's the three of them. Just Jim Carrey. No, that's, no, 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 that's, that's forever, forever, which yeah. is actually my bad. Not as bad of a movie. Also not a good movie, but no, it sucks, but it's not like Batman and Robin. Right. It's kind of the best possible version of Joel Schumacher's horrible train wreck. Train wreck of <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the best possible yeah. train wreck. Yeah. And Batman versus Robin or Batman versus Robin Dawn of justice. <laughs> you know, it's got a bat credit card and all kinds of things that are terrible in it. 
It's a bad movie, and we'll <sighs> probably never review it. I hope not. People have asked, like, if you're going to do the Burtons, are you going to do the Schumachers? What would we say? Ha, 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 it's bad. What do you want? Yeah. Two hours of that? No. Please. At least give us an interesting bad movie to talk about. If you want us to bash something to bits, like Dune. But Denny Villain knows Dune. That's interesting to talk about how bad yeah, it is. Part two, we'll get you'll get that. Yeah, you'll get you'll have a second about that. Twenty twenty three, right? Right. Have your fill of us. Is that coming out in tearing something to shreds. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, maybe it'll be great. They got Christopher Walken playing Emperor. What's the release date? It's this year, isn't it? That's what I thought. Is it going to be a year? fall release again? I think it's fall or Christmas or something. Uh, I'm looking. I think we dropped I think the first one dropped in November of. Yeah, I'm expected November third. November 3rd. All right. An early birthday present for me. Is there anything else to say? Uh, go to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash standard at the movies. We have a Discord. You can give your own thoughts about Clueless or any of the movies that we discuss. Or you can just be like, I don't want to talk about the French New Wave. And I'll talk about the French New Wave with you if that's what you really want. Italian neorealism. Whatever you want. I've seen all the movies and I will talk about them with you. And I will send you books about movies for $50 a month. You can have your own film education class. Uh, this month, if you'd been signed up, you would have gotten the, one of the best books about making movies. Sydney, is it Lemet or LeMay? I think it's LeMay. Sydney LeMay's Making Movies, which is a wonderful book to understand how movies work and how actors work with directors and how blocking is accomplished. He's the director, of course, of 12 Angry Men, among other things. And just a wonderful book and you could have got it you could also just order it from amazon now that i've told you what it is but i'm not going to tell you what they are every month unless i do hey speaking of things that i do i like to call out our patron choice award of awesomeness winners like keith now ben what is it that makes keith a patron choice award of awesomeness winner keith is not clueless about uh life or, or good movies he's got keith, a clue he has a clue he has a clue about what life is and what movies are good movies. Do you yeah. think he has a copy of the board game where Mr. Body is murdered with the wrench in the laboratory or whatever? Laboratory. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> wow. Right, I'm going to have to leave the country. <laughs> I don't think I can, You're fired. I don't think I can stay in the United States after saying laboratory. That's embarrassing. Yep. Laboratory? What was I even going toward? The lavatory? Laboratory. There's, there's no lavatory. Conservatory, I guess. There's a conservatory. conservatory. <laughs> the lavatory. Was it Mr. Body? It's in the volcano. Isn't there a conservatory? Mr. Peabody. Who's Mr. Peabody? What? Isn't in it, Sherman? Am I? I don't know. The history traveling dog? Is it Mr. Body who's killed? I, I always forget. Yeah, I he's thought the body. There was a, Mr. Body. I thought there was a Peabody in the characters, but obviously I'm just not up on I don't have a clue. No, you don't. <laughs> That's the problem here. I can say all the characters. You got your Miss Scarlet. Uh, you got your Mr. Green. You got Colonel your Professor Mustard. Plum. You got your Colonel Mustard. You got your... Oh, no. There's at yeah. least two more. Something white. Mrs. White, she's like the maid. Uh, You've got, and is there a black character? I not, cannot not, remember. Not, a, not an African-American, but like a... Anyway, Keith is not clueless. I guess that was the point. And yeah. Keith is not clueless. Movie's not clueless. Until next time. As if. As if.